One of the most shocking statements found in the Bible, in my mind, is found in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. I'm certain that you've heard it before. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6 is where Paul says, Be anxious for nothing. That kind of surprises me. If I had heard that statement in a vacuum and I didn't know who said it or why, I would probably be likely to guess that some young, naive preacher who's making grandiose, insupportable claims was trying to tell everybody that they should get over all their problems and how naive a statement that was. But the problem is, I know who said it. And I know why he said it. It was the Apostle Paul who was neither young nor was he naive. He spoke it by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which means it must certainly be something that is supported by God. And so I'm left to be amazed at this statement in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6 when Paul said, be anxious for nothing. And then what amazes me even more is I consider who this man was and what this man had been through. And I consider the number of things that the Apostle Paul had to be anxious about. The number of things he had to be discouraged and frustrated and distressed and depressed about. And yet this man says, be anxious for nothing. Let's just look in the letter to the Philippians alone at the number of things that he had to be stressed out about. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 7, Paul said, just as it is, it's Philippians 1.7, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. In my chains, Paul says. Paul wrote this from prison. You think that might stress somebody out? And yet Paul said, be anxious for nothing. Look in verse 15 of the same chapter. Paul, talking about those who are preaching the Gospel, said, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some from goodwill. Verse 16, The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. There were some who were preaching the Gospel, but they were doing it in such a way as to try to cause Paul even more problems. And yet this man said, Be anxious for nothing. I read in verse 20 of Philippians chapter 1, he says, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul was in prison and he recognized that he might very well be executed. You think we might be stressed out or frustrated or discouraged or distressed or depressed about that? And yet Paul said, be anxious for nothing. Then I look in verse 28 of the same chapter and he says, "...not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me." Not only was Paul going to suffer, but his friends and his brethren in Christ, he knew they were going to suffer. There's a lot of times... We can take the suffering, but we look at those that we love. We struggle with that. And yet, this same Paul said, be anxious for nothing. Look in Philippians chapter 2 now, beginning at verse 1. He says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, 
having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Look in verse 14. He tells the Philippians in Philippians 2.14, do all things without complaining and disputing. And notice also chapter 4 and verse 2. He said, I implore you, Odia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the Gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. When I read these passages, it seems to me that the church at Philippi must have been having a little struggle with disunity and diversity. And Paul was encouraging them, be united, be of the same mind. You think folks have something to be concerned about and they might get stressed out about division in the congregation? And yet Paul said, be anxious for nothing. Look back again in chapter 2. Beginning at verse 25, Paul said, Yet I considered it necessary to send, you to, send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all, and he was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I understand that by the time Paul wrote this, Epaphroditus was all right. And yet Paul had friends who were sick, even unto death. And yet he said, be anxious for nothing. I'm amazed at this. Look in chapter 3 and verse 2. He instructs the Philippians to beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. And he goes on to talk about this. When he's telling them to beware of these dogs, he's talking about the false Judaizing teachers that said that you had to be circumcised in order to be saved. He understood that these false teachers in his absence were getting to the churches and he was having to warn them. And yet, despite the fears of false teachers, Paul is the one that says, be anxious for nothing. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7, he says, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted a loss for Christ. So we can go through and look at the things that were gained to him in the world that he gave up for Christ. Here's a man that had to sacrifice almost everything. Family, power, influence, money, in order to be a Christian. And he is the one that says, be anxious for nothing. I look in chapter 3 and verse 17 where he says, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame who set their mind on earthly things. <coughs> Excuse me. Here were brethren that Paul recognized we're not living faithfully. Those who ought to be disciplined by the church. You think that might stress folks out? Cause them to be anxious? Worried? And yet this Paul, who knew all this, said, be anxious for nothing. And of course, we can look in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 10. Paul said, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to me, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul, though a full-time evangelist, was not working with a church that was supporting him, giving him funds every month. He was 
having to work on his own. He was relying on brethren from different congregations to send him money. And who knew when they would be able to? And who knew when the messenger would actually be able to get there? And he was having to live from day to day and not really knowing where it was going to come from. And this is the Paul who said, Be anxious for nothing. I am amazed at that. I mean, what kind of stresses and anxieties and distresses and depressions and oppressions do we go through that we don't see that Paul had to deal with? This is not some naive young guy who doesn't know how the world works trying to make grandiose claims. This is an experienced man who's been through far more than any of us. And he boldly says to us, be anxious for nothing. I sometimes want to soften it. Don't be anxious over many things. Or just be careful what you're anxious about. Only the really, really important things. But that's not what Paul said. Paul said, be anxious for nothing. And if a man like Paul who had been through the things that Paul had been through can say that, that causes me to want to stand up and take notice. Surely this man obviously understands something that can help me. And in fact, he doesn't just say be anxious for nothing. But in the verses that follow this passage, Paul provides a plan for overcoming anxiety. We might call it Paul's three-point plan for personal peace. Right here in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6-9, through he says, Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. Paul wanted to help these Philippians have peace. And Paul, obviously, is an example for us. And if Paul could go through what he had been through and still be able to say that we can be anxious for nothing, I think we ought to be able to stand up and take notice and realize that perhaps his plan which, of course, we know is not really his. But perhaps his plan will really work. I want you to notice the three things that Paul says here. The very first thing that Paul says is that we need to pray. He says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Now, we could just talk about praying. We could talk about how to pray and how to let your request be made known to God. But really, if we did that, we'd only be scratching the surface because Paul's real point here when he tells us to give our request to God is not just spend time in prayer. His real point is we ought to trust God. If we want to have peace, if we want to be anxious for nothing, the very first thing we have to do is to surrender ourselves to God and trust Him recognize that He will take care of us, that He will provide. Paul says, let your request be made known to Him. And when we consider that Paul points out that we can make our request known to Him and encourages us to do that, telling us that His peace, which passes all understanding, will be with us if we do that. 
I think we can recognize four areas about which we must trust God. Number one, we must trust that God is there and will not abandon us. We're not going to pray to Him, trusting Him, if we think He's going to abandon us. But do you remember what Hebrews 13 says? In Hebrews chapter 13, beginning at verse 5, the Scripture there says, "...let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For He Himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear." What can man do to me? Along with that, not only can we trust God that He'll not abandon us, we can trust that God is powerful enough that He won't lose us. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 35. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 35, the Scripture there says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Romans 8.35 Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. None of these things that might distress us or trouble us or cause us problems will cause us to be separated from God. God won't lose us as long as we continue to trust Him. He says, trust Him. He's there and He won't abandon us. The second area regarding which we must trust Him is that He knows what we need. Look in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 8, In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 8, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 8, Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. He repeats that again in chapter 6 and verse 32. He said, For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. We can trust God that He knows what we need. God created us. He knows what we need. And we can trust Him. And we can trust Him thirdly, that He cares about us and about our needs. Look in 1 Peter chapter 5. In 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning at verse 6. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6, Peter said, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. We can trust God because He cares for us. He won't abandon us. He knows what we need. And He cares about us, which means He wants to provide our needs. He wants to be there for us. And He will be there for us. And fourthly, we need to trust God that He is able to provide these needs that He cares about us. Paul demonstrated that in Philippians 4, 6 when he said with all prayer and supplication let your requests be made known to God with thanksgiving. Why do we give Him thanks? Because He's already done so much. In a very subtle way, Paul points out to these Philippians that you can trust God because look at all that He has already done. That's why we should already be thankful. 
we can trust Him because He's able. Then Paul does something very interesting here in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, as he reemphasizes that this is all about the peace which comes from God. But notice what he says. Verse 7, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Here's a very subtle point, but a very profound point. The peace that God gives us will come through Christ Jesus. What a great reminder. In the midst of any type of distress or stress or frustration or anxiety that we might be going through, that God has already sent Christ Jesus. It is so much easier for us to be able to have peace trusting God when we are able to remember that the number one stress in our lives has already been dealt with. You want to think about something that's distressing? that will cause anxiety, that will cause stress. Think about trying to overcome your sin and keep from going to hell and going to heaven all by yourself. I'd be constantly running into a brick wall. You remember Proverbs 20 and verse 9 said, Who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I'm free from my sin? We just can't do it. But God's already taken care of that through Jesus Christ. What other stress can overcome us? None of them will send us to hell. God's already dealt with that one. Do you remember what Paul said in Romans 5? What a great statement Paul makes in Romans 5. He points out that Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. And in Romans 5 and verse 10, Paul said this, drawing a conclusion from God's sacrifice of His Son. He said for in Romans 5.10, If when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we, whom we have now received the reconciliation. Paul says, look, when we were sinners, when we were enemies of the cross, God sent His Son to die for us. How much more now that we've been reconciled through His Son? Is He going to make sure that through the life of Christ we can be saved? All these things that we start worrying about, that Satan is using to try to separate us from Christ, if we'll just trust God. Paul points out, God will bring us through all that. He's already sent His Son. If He loved us and knew what we needed that much and cared that much about us and did that much for us, what's He not going to do for us now? He'll help us through all those difficult, distressing times and we can have peace. And so Paul said, don't be anxious. Pray. trusting God. And here's one more amazing thing about this is that there are times that the stress of the world weighing on us, we're not even sure what we ought to pray and what we ought to ask God for. There are times when maybe we're not even sure what we should say. But notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 26. In Romans 8 and verse 26, the Scripture says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Even when we're not sure what we ought to pray. When we're trusting God, 
the Scripture points out that the Spirit makes intercession for us. I don't know how that works. It's an amazing thing to me. But isn't it awesome that God cares so much about us that we can trust Him and pray to Him? And even when we're not sure how to pray or what to pray, the Spirit is interceding for us. That's amazing. When we rest in that, we can have peace. That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6 and verse 7. We go back to Philippians chapter 4 and let's notice the second thing that Paul points out to us. When we're facing the distresses, the stresses, the anxieties, the depressions, all the things that Satan would use to turn us away from God, Paul says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Step number two, think good thoughts. It's just that simple. Think about the good things. Very interestingly, this word where Paul says meditate on these things, the Greek word translated there is logizomai. That doesn't mean much to me, but according to Spiritus Zodiates, the complete word study dictionary New Testament, he says that this word that's translated meditate means to put together with one's mind, to count, to occupy oneself with reckonings or calculations. Let me read that to you again. To put together with one's mind, to count, to occupy oneself with reckonings or calculations. That's what it means to meditate. Count, calculate, reckon, put together with your mind. You know the song we sing, Count Your Many Blessings? That's what Paul's saying right here. You count these things. You reckon these things. You calculate these things. The things that are true, the things that are noble, the things that are just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's of good report, if it's, any, if it's virtuous, if it's praiseworthy, meditate on that. Calculate that. Count that up. Reckon that. Spend your time focusing on those things. Don't spend your time focusing on the bad things. Don't spend your time meditating and counting up the things that are false or the things that are irreverent, the things that are unfair, the things that are impure, the things that are ugly and not lovely, the things that are a bad report, the things that aren't virtuous and the things that aren't praiseworthy. Don't think about all those things. Paul, in very strong terms, is simply telling us, look on the bright side. Think about the good things that are coming out of this. Focus on the good things that God can do through this. Think about the great blessings that God has already given to you. It may surprise you what the Lord has done. Paul is an outstanding example of this. He didn't just say it, he did it. Remember all those stresses we talked about? Let's just look at a few of them and notice how he dealt with them. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12. Here he is in chains, but notice what he was thinking about in Philippians 1.12. I want you to know, brethren, Philippians 1.12, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. He's looking on the bright side. He's there in prison. He's in chains. But the gospel was furthered. Verse 14. And most of the brethren in the Lord have become confident by my chains and much more bold to speak the word without fear. He's not able to speak the word very much because there he is in chains. And yet, the brethren have been made bolder. 
He could have spent his time thinking about all the things he wasn't able to accomplish because he's bound here in prison. But he didn't. He was thinking about the good things that were happening. That's amazing. Verses 15 and 16, these people, they were preaching Christ from envy and strife, doing it from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that affliction of my chains. Notice what he says in verse 18. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. He said, look, I know what they're doing, but unwittingly, they're furthering the gospel. They may be trying to add strife to my chains, but they're still preaching Christ, and somebody might learn the truth from it and be prompted to become children of God. He said, I'm going to rejoice in that. That's amazing, isn't it? As he faced death, possibly. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, he looked on the bright side. Whether he lived or whether he died, he saw the positive benefits. He said, for to me, to live is Christ. He said, if I live, I get to continue serving Christ and be able to do more work for Him. And that's great, and I'm looking forward to that. But if I die, to me to die is gain. Well, of course, because I get to get out of this rotten world and I'll get to be with Christ in heaven. And isn't that awesome? He was able to look on the good side of all of it. When Paul was facing stress, he thought good thoughts. He focused on things that are true, things that are noble, whatever things are just whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, and if there's anything praiseworthy. Meditate. Calculate. Count up. Reckon. Put together with your mind those things. You spend your time doing that, you won't have time to get all worried about all the negative things and get depressed and down about all the bad things. Because let's face it, bad things happen. But God has blessed us in so many ways. And there are so many good things going on. Think about those. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 3. 2 Corinthians 10, 3, Paul said, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is full. He says our job, our war is to bring every thought into captivity. If we want to have peace, we've got to trust God and we've got to control our thoughts. We've got to think good thoughts. We've got to bring those bad thoughts into captivity. A friend of mine once said, you can't stop birds from flying over your head, but you can certainly stop them from making a nest in your hair. That's the same thing about thought control. I'm sure that we cannot control every fleeting thought that comes through our minds. We've already done too many bad things and seen too many bad things. We're not going to stop those things from happening. But we can control what our mind focuses and meditates on. We can control what we count up and reckon and put together with our mind. We can control what we calculate, what we focus and meditate on. And Paul says, think good thoughts and you'll have peace. Turn back to Philippians chapter 4 and let's notice the third point in Paul's three-point plan for peace. And in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 9, he goes on and he says to these brethren in Philippi, he said, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. No matter how you feel, do what you know is right. 
Of course, Paul specifically said to them, what you heard from me, that's what you're supposed to do. What you saw in me, the example that I've set for you, that's what you need to be doing. Do those things and the God of peace will be with you. I know that we've never actually seen Paul. We haven't got to see Paul in action and how he deals with things. And we've never actually heard him teach us. But I know just as well that God has left us a guide. And Paul was one of the authors. But of course not ultimately. While Paul was one of the men that God used, the author of this guide is the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 20. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, the Scripture there says, "...knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit." Paul and others wrote as the Holy Spirit moved them. And this is a guide for our lives. These are the things that Paul taught. These are the things that people saw in Paul and heard and received from Paul and others whom God used. And the Scripture points out to us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 how profitable these things are for us. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 16, the Scripture says, All Scripture is inspired by God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I can go to the Scripture and it can tell me the good things I ought to do. And Paul said, do those good things. Whatever's happening to you. Whatever's going on in your life, whatever stresses, distresses, anxieties, and concerns face you, do what you know is right. No matter what you feel like doing, do what you know is right. And you'll have peace. You know, this guide, is, it's an amazing guide. It teaches us so many things about our lives and how to live. Certainly, it teaches us about how to behave in the church. First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. First Timothy 3.15, Paul said, If I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. This guide provides advice and it provides commandments for living at home. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands to the Lord. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for. Ephesians 6, 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother which is the first commandment with promise that it may be well with you that you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. But bring them up in the training and admission of the Lord. And so much more about the home and the family. This book gives us guidance for how we just ought to live our daily lives. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 25, it says, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Verse 28 of Ephesians 4, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. There's some financial and work advice there. Verse 29 of Ephesians 4, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you, with all malice. 
and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Here's great teaching for how we just ought to live our daily lives, how we ought to talk, and how we ought to walk, and how we ought to work. The Scripture has guidance for conflict resolution. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 23, he says, Therefore, Matthew 5.23, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're in the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hands you the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you paid the last penny. And there's so many things that the Bible provides teaching for. And if we want to have peace, what Paul says is you need to do what you know is right. Do those right things. There comes a time when we have to get up off our knees and we have to get out of our thoughtful spots and we've got to start doing and acting. And Paul says if you want to have peace, do what you know is right. Follow the examples and the teachings that are set forth here. Because that's when we'll have peace. And what that means is, is that we don't follow our feelings. We don't follow our peers. We don't follow the majority. We don't follow our family. We don't follow anything or anyone but God. Do what He says. And you have peace. You know why? Because it's only when we've obeyed God that we can rest assured that we've done what's right and know that heaven awaits us. When we do what's right, we'll have peace. Paul said, if you want to have peace, pray, trusting God. Think good thoughts. And do what you know is right. And when you do those things, then you'll have peace. Now, I am not so naive as to believe that this afternoon you can go home and go through a three-step process and bang, no more stress ever. But what I do know is that if you make these three things part of your daily life, working on them, grappling with them, You'll be amazed. No matter what's happening around you, what kind of peace and contentment you can have in Christ. And you can be like Paul, even in prison, in chains, people abusing and using you, people mistreating you on purpose, and yet still able to do what God says and have peace and contentment. Isn't that awesome? Would you please pull out your songbooks?